Welcome back, healthy people, to another episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I hope you had a great Easter weekend. If you don't celebrate Easter, I hope you had a good weekend. I got a nice adult Easter basket from my mom, consisted of some oversized boxers, a few packets of off-brand oatmeal, one packet was maple, the other one was brown sugar, so I guess I have to combine them to make maple brown and sugar. Got some fabric softener and the director's cut of Boo 2, a Medea Halloween on DVD. Very, very random movie to get in the uh, adult Easter basket, but I appreciate it. If anyone wants to come over and watch it with me, shoot me a DM at underscore Dr. Randy on IG. And please bring a DVD player. I, I don't think I have one stashed away anywhere. I'll make the popcorn. But anyways, in this week's HPI, aka Healthy People Information, I will be reviewing anaphylaxis in relationship to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. Last week, I discussed the Pfizer vaccine. This week, I'm reviewing an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that came out a few weeks after the article I reviewed last week. This article has more data and an additional vaccine. Some of the terms I use, such as anaphylaxis, I provided the definition on in the previous episode. So go back and listen to that episode to get the definition of those terms that I'll be using in this episode if this is your first time listening to this topic. This article I review looked at data from December 14, 2020 to January 18, 2021. During this time frame, approximately 9.9 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine and 7.8 doses of the Moderna vaccine were administered. During that time frame, there were 66 cases of anaphylaxis reported to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. This includes the 21 anaphylaxis reactions to the Pfizer vaccine that I mentioned in the previous episode. Therefore, out of the approximately 16.7 million individuals administered either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine from December 14, 2020 to January 18, 2021, only 66 had an anaphylactic reaction. This includes individuals who have received the second dose of these vaccines. The previous article I reviewed last week only discussed after the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. This article includes individuals that have received both dosages of their vaccine and includes the data from the Moderna vaccine as well. This breaks down to 4.7 cases per million for Pfizer vaccine and 2.5 cases per million for Moderna vaccine of anaphylactic reaction. So that means out of a million people, only 4.7 cases per million for the Pfizer vaccine and out of a million people, only 2.5 cases per million for the Moderna vaccine of individuals having anaphylaxis. Let's dive a little bit deeper into these numbers. Well, let me put my floaties on since we're going into the deep end. Okay, Intervoice, you ready? Almost, let me get myself together, get these floaties on these big gun arms. All right, I'm ready, I'm ready, go. Don't you leave me in this deep end. All right, I won't leave you. The average age for anaphylactic reaction was age 40. 95% of the individuals who had the anaphylactic reaction were women. Average time of onset of symptoms was 10 minutes, and 80% of the individuals had some type of allergy that was noted before. 
which included some type of food, drug, or insect allergy. And finally, approximately one third of the individuals had a prior episode of anaphylaxis. And there you have it, anaphylaxis in relationship to the Pfizer and COVID vaccine. As you can see, it rarely occurs. 4.7 cases per million for Pfizer and 2.5 cases per million for Moderna based on this article. And if you remember from last week, the number of cases for Pfizer was actually higher, but we have received more data and the numbers have gone down and we can see that anaphylaxis rarely happens. At the end of this episode, I'll tell you one thing you should ask the staff when you go to get vaccinated. This week, I'm interviewing Dr. Finwa Famakinwa Milhouse. Dr. Milhouse is a fellowship trained board certified urologist. She currently practices as a female pelvic floor surgeon at DuPage Medical Group, the largest private practice group in the state of Illinois. Originally born in Nigeria, her family immigrated to the US when she was a young child. She grew up in Texas, shout out to my state, Texas, and ended up at the University of Texas at Houston for medical school. She trained at the University of Chicago for urology residency and completed her fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. I think next episode I'll discuss the pathway of what it takes to be a physician so you can understand some of these terms that I use like residency and fellowship. Dr. Milhouse and I will discuss the experience she had when her and her husband were both diagnosed with COVID. It is a very interesting experience especially with her being on the opposite side of the fence, being the family member of a sick patient. She would talk about how this has made her look at life differently and change the way she practices medicine. And just a heads up, we mentioned a device called a pulse oximeter a few times during the interview. It's a device that's placed on your finger to monitor your oxygen level. The goal is to keep your oxygen level at 95, but as you'll hear in this interview, her husband's level didn't stay above that number. So here's the interview with Dr. Milhouse, AKA your favorite urologist. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Milhouse. Thank you for sitting down and join me on this episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, yes. We've worked together on other things via social media. So I figured I'd like to have you on telling about your COVID experience with you, yourself and your family. I know you kind of shared your story on um, IG before kind of telling what was going on. So we'll just kind of get into it now. So, I mean, you can start where you want to start talking about your experience. Sure. So it was back in the early part of November that I became positive or tested positive for coronavirus or COVID-19. And immediately after, you know, basically my husband did. And so we, you know, after the dust had settled, I wanted to be public with what happened as a learning lesson for people, for my followers. So basically at this point in time in the pandemic and just in life, like we had started to become a little, you know, just stir crazy and loosening up, you know, and we had gone through Chicago summertime and Chicago summertime is like, you know, the funnest place to be. And so we had gone through like a really like lull summertime experience, which usually ordinarily we're like out there because, you know, the, we know winter's coming. So we got to get it in. We got to get it in. Yeah, we got to get it in. And so we started loosening up towards the end, towards the end of summertime, like August, the last month, of August and, and therefore. And 
were, you know, went unscathed, you know, and it was mostly outdoor stuff that we were doing, like almost exclusively outdoor stuff, you know, so there is maybe an element of protection there or I shouldn't say protection because that's, but like, a you know, less transmission. Mm-hmm. So as the weather was changing, you know, then things were moving indoor and it was, um, and our, our um, state because um, of Pritzer and, um, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, they've been kind of taking it scientific. You know, they want to they 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 want to be mindful of obviously our um, the businesses and economics, but they've been being also very very respectful of science. So, you know, the indoor in dining was uh, prohibited. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, um, was allowed. Um, not prohibited. Was allowed. And so we, I was turning, uh, had a birthday, and I was like, let's go. My husband actually suggested for us to go out. I actually initially was like, nah, you know, it was COVID, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was like, let's go out, you know. So, I, you know, I said, you know what, I'm tired. I, I really want to get out. I'm tired of, like, not doing anything. So long story short, we went out with a few of our friends, uh, indoor dining, indoor kind of loungy type of experience with uh, four other people, basically two other couples. So six people total, including myself and my husband. And we're eating and drinking, obviously, with masks off in an indoor environment with other people are six feet apart, but with their masks off because they're eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. So approximately like a week, a little over a week after that, maybe eight days, nine days, my friend calls me and says, hey, I've been sick and I just tested positive for COVID. At this point in time, I had basically no symptoms. I think I had one day I had like a little head congestion. I took some Sudafed and it went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my husband had no symptoms and I was like, oh crap. Okay. So then I, what you know, kind of I, symptoms did your friend say that they had? She had lost her t- sense of taste, um, lost her sense of smell. She said she was completely wiped out, like fatigued, just tired. Yeah. The biggest thing was just the massive fatigue that she had and she, if you asked her, like the most bizarro and like just hardest thing was the lack of taste, you know, she said. And so her husband, too, tested positive maybe the next day. Both of them had very similar symptoms. Hers were worse. Hers were much worse. So then the other couple, she obviously communicated with both of us. So the other couple went and got their test, test done. I, you know, and my husband got tested. And one of the things I'll say was it was a little hard to get a test. Mm-hmm. For me, for my job, for my work, it wasn't that hard for me, except for the fact that I had to like literally figure out how, when I was going to do it because it's like the testing sites close at 4.30. And at this point, I'm an essential worker. So until I know, and I, you know, until I know, they were like, okay, you need to work. Like I still had cases. I still had clinics. So I actually, I was like, I don't know when I'm going to get this test. It may not be till the weekend. And, I, and this was earlier in the week. I was like, that's several days. I mean, that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I was able to figure it out. All right, I got the test. And my husband, I tried to get him tested right away. And even his test was delayed because we couldn't get in anywhere. CBS, Wog, nowhere, none of the, cl- you know, the usual places in the beginning of the pandemic. You couldn't, you couldn't schedule a test. I had to like wake up at four in the morning, three in the morning to fit, to then be able to get a slot that opened up at CVS. So a few days after my test appointment. So I got tested, came back positive. So then I knew, and that was before my husband got tested. So I kind of knew, okay, this is, and then my, the other couple tested positive too. So now you got mm-hmm. five out of six people positive. 
I was like, husband, and I was like, you know, honey, you, you're positive too. Um, he works from home, so it really wasn't anything different for him. I obviously stayed, and then our daughter, um, who was actually going to school, they were having classes in, in person. Immediately, we, you know, she had to quarantine with us. So he comes back positive. That's when he started to show, like, symptoms. You know, at this point, I had no symptoms. You know, I had that minor head cold, and I felt fine. And he started to show symptoms. He, you know, spiked a fever, you know, just felt run down, very tired. I mean, my husband is, he, he's up, you know, fairly early. He's getting things done around the house. He does it all. And he's like, go, go, go. He works out every day, all of those things. And he would just kind of like lay in bed and he would teach. He's a teacher. He would like teach classes. And in between his classes, he'd go and lay down. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is not like you at all. So um, okay. how long is this after the birthday get together? This was probably 10, day 10 to 14 after okay. the birthday get together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So about the two week time period. Okay. So he's, you know, and then he started kind of coughing and at this, and then now I'm like trying to separate immediately. I'm trying to keep him away from, you know, the kid. Okay. You know, our daughter who was seven at the time was like, I don't want her getting sick. Like, I can't take care of both of y'all. Like, I can't, you know, and she's doing Zoom class. And if you're a parent, you understand that it is a lot of work to do. It's like, they're not, they don't just run, you know, with a second grader, you know? So I had to like do all this hands-on that I wasn't used to doing for her. And then I had to go like kind of nurse him a little bit because he was getting worse and worse. And, and then there was this, like, it was weird. He was getting worse. And then there was this like brief period where he got better. And he was like, I feel like myself again. And, you know, I had treated, you know, I'd given him Tylenol and ibuprofen and, and, and all this stuff. And he was like, okay, I feel better in zinc and whatever else. So. Which one uh, of his symptoms were starting to get better that you notice? He, his, like his fatigue and he was, he had, the fever had broke. He hadn't had a fever and he just, you know, just looked better. He looked perkier. So that just lasted for probably about a two days max. Me, you know, it was very short lived because then he started going downhill. He started going downhill again. And I had at the beginning of the pandemic bought a pulse oximeter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's something that's the other main reason I wanted to express my story on IG because I'll get to the story, but the pulse oximeter like was like the VI, the most valuable player in this whole thing. So I had bought a pulse oximeter and I was like, Oh great. I get to use it. We hadn't used it yet. So I was monitoring his pulse ox and mine and mine. I, again, I had no symptoms so much less mine than, um, than his. And he was, he had tinkered around 93, a few times, 92. And I'm a urologist. So I'm thinking, all right, 93, 92, that's not bad. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking, okay, you know, we would, that's not terrible. Yeah, take some deep, big, deep breaths. Yeah, I'm like, take some deep breaths, um, you know, whatever. So I have, you know, obviously many friends in medicine. And so my two closest friends, uh, one of them is in internal medicine. And, you know, I'm, you know, giving them updates. And she told me, she was like, if it goes below 94, you know, you need to take him to get evaluated. And I'm thinking, that's... That's a little aggressive. <laughs> I'm like, nice. No, he's, he's not like that. You know what I'm saying? But 
she's she's told that to me multiple she said that she repeated herself mm-hmm. like please if it and so had she not repeated herself i would have just been like mm, i don't know i think we'll use a different cutoff yeah. in the 90s he got an a <laughs> yeah exactly that's what i'm thinking he's in the a so she repeated i was like okay fine you know i'll listen so he was, this was a Wednesday night, I believe. And so he, I was watching him and he was just, you know, he just looked worse. And I was checking his pulse and it got below 94. Okay. It had come back up at some point. And then, you know, she told me if it goes below 94, it got below 94. I think it was, I can't remember, maybe 92, you know? And so I was like, all right, I need to heed my friend's warning. Uh, I was like, we should go. So we were like debating and he was like, he's telling me I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, I'm really not, you know, I'm fine. He's like, he's sitting down. I'm fine. I was like, okay, can you at least go to the urgent care down the road? He's like, I don't want you guys to take me because Alexis, I don't want her to be exposed and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, you're going to go to the urgent care down the road at least. So as he's getting up to get dressed and get put on clothes, he like barely can, he's like hacking up a lung, just coughing. He's having to like lean forward to (gasps) catch his breath. And the pulse oximeter is just going down like eight, like now it's 89, 88, 87. I'm like, okay, partner, (laughs) we, you got to go to the ER. We, I got to take you to the ER. We're going to the ER. And he was just taking another level up. Well, actually, yes. And actually I wanted to call the ambulance Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't let me. That's what, like, I was like, maybe we should even call the ambulance. He's like, no, 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 no. That's $500. I knew you were going to say that. that. We we all be worried about them bills. Like, I might not die. I might (laughs) die, but I'm not going to have a bill before I go. He was like, that's $500 minimum. (laughs) So I was like, okay, cool. I was like, yeah. And that's something I would say too, if I was in his position. So I get Mm -hmm. it. So I was like, okay, let's, let me take you. So I had to swoop, swoop baby girl up. Like we got to go to the hospital now. And she was like, what, what's going on? You Mm -hmm. know, this literally unfolded within a couple minutes, like a couple minutes, he was not looking terrible, just little satting a little low and feeling, telling me he was fine to like now looking horrible. And hey, we got to run out of the house immediately now. Grab your stuff. Let's go. So, you know, we we are driving to the hospital. The nearest hospital is about 14, 15 minutes away. And as we're driving, he's in the back seat, hunched over and I got the pulse ox on and it's going lower and lower and his heart rate's climbing. His pulse, like it was in the seventies now. His and pulse ox. His pulse ox. His O2 mm-hmm. sat was in the seventies. Yes, his mm-hmm. O2 sats were in the seventy seventies. And his heart rate. Well, I'll talk about his heart rate in a second. So his O2 sats got in the seventies, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I grabbed the. I'm driving right, so I grab it, put it on my finger just to make sure. Like, no, I don't know, is this thing right? Mm-hmm. And I'm reading ninety six, ninety seven, something like that. You know, so put it back on his finger, Oops, 77, 70, you know, like, so I'm like, Oh my God, this yeah. is scary. It was scary. I was legit scared. And I think I was cursing and I was like, you know, trying to be calm, but like I was, you know, mm-hmm. and my daughter's just in the, cause my daughter's in the front seat. Cause he's in the back seat, just like laid up. And my daughter's just mute, you know, quiet and just like trying to be still, you know, cause she's kind of grasping like the seriousness of it. Mm-hmm. And um, he's in the back and I'm like, talk to me, keep talking. He's like, yeah, I, you know, he's just real labored in his voice. And um, he's just like, I'm tired. He just was like, I'm just tired. I'm tired. And his heart rate when we're pulling into the ER was like 154. Mm. <laughs> 
So for those who don't know, normal is between 60 and 100. Yeah. 154. And a baby, a newborn baby is 154. Mm-hmm. In the 140s, 150. So I'm, I like, I'm thinking, okay, maybe he, I'm thinking the worst. Obviously I'm thinking I'm gonna, he's gonna end up on a vent. He may not live through this. Maybe he threw a massive blood clot in his lungs. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's a, he's a big guy. My husband's a big guy. You know, he's healthy because he works out all the time and mm-hmm. he eats right, but he's overweight. You know, um, he doesn't have, fortunately, he does not have any other medical comorbidities except for his weight. Like he doesn't have hyper pressure. He doesn't have diabetes. He's, How tall is he? He's six two mm-hmm. and he's like two sixty something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's stocky. He's stocky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he is. Yeah. So I drop him off. So I pull up to the front of the ER, run in. I'm like, my husband is, you know, sad. I'm like, it was, it was such like weird because I pull into the ER and I, I'm like urgently trying to get somebody to help us. And like, there's no urgency whatsoever from the front desk of the ER, like none. Mm -hmm. She's like finishing, finishing up her paperwork from whatever she's doing. Okay. Mm. You know, and I'm like, no, she's sitting at 75 and his heart rate's 154. Help. We have, you know, and so. Ma'am, where's your insurance card? Yes. Like, can you just, yes. So that was, and you, when you're now the patient, you know, or a patient family as a physician, you see the other side of medicine and you're like, oh my God, this is aggravating. So they finally get to him and like swoop him away. And so I'm thinking it's not even registering in my head. It didn't register in my head. Like, nah, bish, you're not going to be in the ER with him. This is COVID pandemic. No family allowed. I didn't even remember that until she turns to me and then says, okay, ma'am, this is this is what you're going to do now. You're going to turn around, go in your car, go home. We got this or we'll take care of him. Mm-hmm. And I'm just stunned. Like, I'm literally stunned. Like, you could have slapped me over the face. Like, what? What do you mean, go home? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had totally forgot that. Were you in Dr. Millhouse mode when you pulled up? I, w- I really wasn't, actually. I was in I'm a scared wife mode. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was totally in a scared wife mode. I didn't even... Yes. Yes. Especially because this was the, this, you know, uh, as a urologist, like this is out of my comfort zone, you know, what was happening to him, you know, this type of emergency. So I was a scared patient family member. Hmm. And when she said that I didn't even pull out the doctor card and be like, well, I'm a doctor. Hmm. I don't think that would have worked. You know, it did anything. You've been like, so <laughs> get your <laughs> <ass and> get <laughs> <laughs> but I just stood there and I'm like trying to see what they're doing. And then she had to yell at me to go. She was like, you have to leave, ma'am. And I was like, well, who's going to call, you know, call, call me or something. Cause they didn't get my number. They didn't get no information, nothing. Mm-hmm. And he, she was like, well, you can contact him. Like if he, he has his phone. Okay. And I'm thinking, oh my God, ma'am. Well, what if he gets intubated? What if his phone dies? What if like, uh, what? You don't contact the, they, this must've been, I can't imagine this is the usual protocol of things, but this must be where we're at at this point with COVID in some places and in some institutions that it's just so overwhelmed. And, and, and like, it's like, listen, we can't be in touch with the family. Like, we ordinarily would make a point of making you feel secure about because they made me feel no security as far as like how I was going to get updated. I had no idea, you know, except for trying to reach him. So I go back 
and leave. And that was the worst part. Mm-hmm. You know, Randy, that was the worst part. The worst part of that was basically feeling like I left him at the doorstep and not knowing when the, what the next update would be. Hey, right. ma'am, the next update is he didn't make it. Hey, ma'am, the next update is he's intubated. He's in the ICU. Hey, you know, I did not know at all. What was and, that first night like for you? So I got to my home. I got back home. I had to be calm enough to get through the drive and put on a face for my daughter. I didn't want her to be scared because she was already kind of, I could tell she was already scared. So I didn't want to make it worse. And so she was expecting us to be with daddy, like in the ER. She was like, what are we doing? I was like, we're going home. Daddy has to, you know, we have, can't stay. So we just have to go home and pray. Blah, blah. So I get her home, get her tucked away. And I go into my room and I just like go to my knees and pray and cry. And I'm like, please, Lord, don't take my husband away from me. You know, please, God, I beg you. And I to call family. At this point, we hadn't told a lot of people that we were positive just because we wanted to get on the other side of it. We didn't want to worry our parents. We didn't want to worry, you know, mm-hmm. so at this time point now I'm calling, telling parents and stuff. The first time I'm like, what? You know, what? You know, and this, mm-hmm. oh yeah. And by the way, I had to, then I get to work because I couldn't reach him. Like I tried to reach, I couldn't reach. And then I was like, I need to know what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. then I get to work and I pull, I start pulling the doctor moves. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I sent out a text message to every single, the hospital I sent him to was a hospital that I didn't know. I didn't know anybody who worked there because I work in a different part of town of Chicago suburbs. Okay. So then I sent out a text message to multiple colleagues in the area. Do you know anybody who's at this hospital? I'm on a Facebook group called uh, Physician Mommy Group. It's a humongous uh, Facebook group, like 80,000 deep physician mothers and i put an sos because this group i swear to i swear to you like no matter where you are in the world if you say i'm in the house i'm in this hospital in like you know timbuktu whatever somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who's at that hospital through this group so i put on an sos through this group like i need somebody who know you know so through those two avenues i was able to within an hour i want to say the director of the er who was not working contacted me. He knew a friend of a friend of mine. And he was like, okay, I just spoke to the, my partner who's on call, who's on, who's there currently. This is the update. You know, he has his chest x-ray looks like COVID pneumonia. He is satting better. He was, his, his sats had improved. They get, you know, I guess maybe they gave him steroids immediately or whatever. Um, his heart rate had gotten better. He was, he, you know, was on O2, but he didn't look like he was getting near intubation, you know, um, he, cause he was getting better already. And they, you know, so that was my first update. And then through the Facebook organization, one of the inter- hospitalists that works at the, at the hospital of this place contacted me mm-hmm. and she was like, Hey, um, my, I'm on call tomorrow. And she knew the, the, her partner who was on call that day. So basically they coordinated his admission to them. She was like, she was like, do you want, you know, you can ask for them to admit to us, you know, cause, and I was like, yeah, I want her, them to, I want him to be admitted to somebody I have like, you know, contact with. And you, I, you know, and you know, this is the part where I feel like the other thing is they were going to send him home that mm-hmm. night. Hmm. Like, oh, okay, he's better, you know, and I'm like, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm I don't want I just I just I, I this and and I'm usually the type of person I'm I don't like to be the difficult patient. I don't like to pull the I'm a doctor when I'm a patient. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. But this time it just my gut, I was like, I need you guys to keep um, you know, you're not sending him home with with you know just yet. You know, like literally I dropped him off with his heart rate 154 and his O2 at 70 something. I just 
could not imagine him being back at home. So they admitted him, took care of him. I was in contact with the ER doctor, with the hospitalist, and he was able to come home later that next evening. So he was only in the hospital that that day. That night, I didn't get any sleep, mainly because I was just constant communication, coordinating, and just, you know, making sure that I could advocate for him however much I could, you know. And this is the part where, you know, it's unfortunate that I felt like I had to use a doctor card and I had to do these things, you know, to get, I guess, not that they didn't take care, they weren't going to take good care of him. I'm not assuming that, but to know when to push more or when to advocate, like you don't know that inherently if as a patient, you're vulnerable, you're scared, you're just doing what the doctors tell you. Doctor tells you this and that, you just do it, you know, for the most part, but I looked back and evaluated. I was like, man, you know, I feel so bad for people who don't have these, who don't know better or know, you know, they don't have that, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to u- utilize. So he came home and he still looked like shit, but he, you know, slowly bit by bit recovered and, you know, is now fully recovered. Thank God back to working out, back to doing this up, you know, up and about. And, you know, it was just, I think because of that early, early, that, that pulse ox and kind of no, knowing when to immediately get his butt to get seen. I just wonder if I didn't have a pulse ox and this man is telling me he's fine. He can breathe. Cause he never once said I'm short of breath. He never once felt short of breath. Okay. So if you're waiting for somebody who's saying, I want to be short of, I'm short of breath. That's when it may be too, maybe too late. Right. Right. So that's one of the major things that I advocate for my patients when they have COVID is make sure you get a pulse oximeter to monitor your oxygen levels. Yes. So that was the big part of my COVID story. Um, Two big lessons was don't take it for granted and be vigilant. You know what I'm saying? You, we are not invincible. COVID is extremely unpredictable. I'm always the sickly one of the two of us. I get a flu shot every year and I've gotten the flu like four or five times. You know, I, you know, have, I got the swine flu when that pandemic was Mm. out, you know, so I'm always the one being sick, catching something, having it the worst. And he's never sick, never, never seen this man sick since we've been, since I've known him. Were you able to eventually get in contact with him personally while he was in the hospital? I was finally, I was able to and it felt so good um to see his face so we did like a facetime uh, call and he was very emotional it was a new thing for him like i said i have never seen him sick in the 12 years that i've known him mm-hmm. and he's really never really been sick if you ask him like he's broken bones and stuff because he played you know played football had concussions but nothing you know else he's never been hospitalized like this and so he, I think for the first time, like faced potential mortality or morbidity, you know, that he had never had to, you know, really think about. And, you know, being a husband and being a man of the house and having, being a father, you know, it hit him hard. You know, he was pretty uh, emotional. He didn't want to speak to, we have two older kids too, and he wasn't even ready to speak to them yet. Cause he's like, I just don't want to like lose, you know, like just, you know, lose it emotionally just yet. He just, as he puts it, he felt like a shell of a man and he, you know, it was scary for him. So. 
Right, right. Going to the hospital is a, a big deal. And if you've never been there before, it can be scary, especially if you're an adult. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the way it was, it was just like emergent, you know, it's not like, hey, we have this planned thing, you're going to be in the hospital, you know, this, you know, it was like, I'm driving 90 miles an hour rushing to the hospital, like barely, you know, and I'm, and when I told him what his heart rate was, he was like, fuck, <laughs> you know, he was like, he, you know, <laughs> like he's laid up, he's like, I'm tired, he's like, oh. What? He's like, you know. <laughs> but he understood the seriousness of what was going on during the yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, I'll be okay. Like he understood, yeah. especially knowing his wife is a physician. Yeah, he did. It took a while though, because when he when I first suggested we you need to get seen, honey, I think you need to go to urgent care a little at least. He was a little reluctant. Because mm-hmm. he's like, I don't feel short of breath. I'm okay. I'm just tired. Mm-hmm. He just kept saying, I'm, I'm tired. I don't feel short of breath. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, what's her name said? If it's below this, you know, and um, your family never wants to believe you, even though you're like the doctor. They never want to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> when you're telling them what it's so, he's like, begrudgingly was like, agreed. I had to, you know, and so then I think it hit him how serious it was as he was starting to look worse and feeling more tired. And then on the way to there, it just, it hit him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you eventually tell the kids that were away what was going on? Oh, oh yes, I had to, because that's, mm-hmm. I thought, I didn't know when I dropped him off the ER, I was thinking all possibilities, you know, we've seen it. We've seen this in medicine. Okay. I was thinking the next time I see this man, I may see him never, mm-hmm. not alive. You, I thought that I was like, I, I don't know if the next time, I see him, and I said that in my post, I was like, I didn't know if I was, I thought my husband might die. Okay, mm-hmm. he might, the next time I, I would see him would be dead. And so I had to tell the older kids, you know, and that was difficult, you know, they're both in college and that was very difficult. You know, I had to be strong for them, but I'm sitting here thinking the worst, praying for the best, you know, being prepared mentally for the worst, so. How were you able to remain strong through all of this? You had some prayer warriors. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes. Soon as I got on that, soon as I told my parents and his mom and his sister, his sister, his oldest sister, who we're very close to, who's the namesake of my daughter, or my daughter's her namesake, his sister Alexis and his mom and my parents are like, like they they pray. His sister prayed. His sister had an amazing amount of peace over the whole thing. The whole time, just like able to just be at peace, that helped. Then, you know, his mom and my parents, my parents must have told the whole dang village. (laughs) (laughs) They told their whole church, church, whatever, like, you know, everybody, people back home in Nigeria, they were going there like SOS, our our son-in-law is in trouble, like, you know, Mm -hmm. all hands on deck. So yeah, that's the type of family we have, is that. (laughs) That's good. That's great. And friends. I had lots of friends praying. Oh my God. Tons of friends praying praying and looking out. People called me that night. Part of the reason why I didn't go to bed is because I was up talking to Brooke. (laughs) 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 And she was giving me advice. So yeah. Okay. Okay. And you were able to talk to like any of the nurses while he was up there on the floor too? So I wasn't, there was one really nice nurse 
-hmm. that was just went out of her way. So in the earliest stages, like I wasn't able to talk to my husband immediately. It took, it took a few hours before I could talk to him. And, you know, those few hours are like a lifetime when you have no idea what's happening to your loved one. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to get a doctor update immediately either, because again, I didn't know anybody who worked there. So I call the ER Mm -hmm. and I'm like, yeah, my name is Dr. Milhouse. I kind of said, I'm Dr. Milhouse. Mm-hmm. I would like to get an update on a patient <laughs> name. We were Milhouse. So the charge nurse is like, or the nurse, I don't know if she's a charge nurse. She was like, she put the, she was like, wait, uh, okay. Just cause you're, she was like, but you're the family, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> and you're a doctor. Like you're not just calling up here acting like you want. Yeah, exactly. So she was like, yeah, so you're not calling because you're taking care of the patient. You're calling because you're family. And I was like, yes. So she was like, well, I'm not allowed to tell you any updates. Mm. Yeah. And I'm like, but I'm his wife. And they're like, but they, again, and I think this is, this is, I have to believe, hopefully this is not their usual protocol, but they literally took no information from me. They made sure he had insurance, dropped him off, had his ID, boop. And I was like kicked out. <laughs> so as far as they knew me, they didn't, he didn't have any, he hadn't even signed any papers or whatnot. Mm. So I'm not allowed to tell you, but she was like, you know what? Let me pee. She peeked over and like told me his vitals. She was like, here, I'll just let you know. These are his vitals. Mm. And that little bit was very, that was, I, I thanked her um, immensely um, I sent every, I sent multiple thank you cards to, to all the people that went out of their way, mm-hmm. you know, the little things to make a family member, just to, to feel comforted, to feel it goes a long way. And I think being on that experience has taught me that tremendously as a provider, mm-hmm. you know, that behind every patient I'm taking care of, there's a, there's a bunch of people that love that person, mm-hmm. um, that are scared for that person and just going out their way to just be like, Hey, let me just, you know, uh, reach out to you, especially when that person, the patient can't communicate with their family directly. All right. So that was going to be one of my questions. Um, have you started to do anything different as a physician since this experience started changing things and bedside manner or the way you communicate with individuals and their families? I think it's made me more sensitive to communicating with family members for sure. I'm always sensitive to communicate with the patient, but like when, you know, so I do surgeries, you know, as part of being a urologist and I've always made it a point to talk to the family member, you know, afterwards, but sometimes like, um, I'll have to rush to another operating room. So I won't be able to, to reach the family member right away or the family members like not available physically or on the phone or whatever. So I'm just like, uh, you know, but this has made me more cognizant of like going out of my way to, to try to reach somebody to spend time ask, answering their questions. And, you know, we're always like in a rush in medicine. We're always mm-hmm. in a rush. It's just made me to say, you know, I'm just going to give my attention to these people right now. You know, that extra tension, that time, when I spend that with that patient, even if it makes the other patient down the line later, I've had somebody, t- a patient tell me this, they're like, I don't mind you're late. That just means you're giving more attention. You're giving extra attention to mm-hmm. the patients. And, you know, I may need that one day, you right. know, what I mean? right. so that's, that's, that's kind of how it's helped me. It's, you know, changed how I practice. Yeah. That's what I kind of tell my patients when I go into a room, maybe late, I said that, the patient before you just needed a little more love and mm-hmm. 
that kind of helps them understand that I'm not being late on purpose. Sometimes stuff just happens. We have crying sessions in rooms. Yes. They're very complicated. Yeah. And I, sometimes I'll be in a room like in clinic and I'll be like, damn, I'm so late. I'm so late. But then something will happen in the patient room that just needs extra time. Mm-hmm. And I'll just suddenly the click will just be like, I don't care. Like, I just need to be in this moment with this patient. I don't care. You know, let me finish this moment with this patient. Let me devote my energy and attention and not focus on, well, the time is, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then when patients, when I'm late and I I apologize to those patients just like you do, hey, I just needed to be. And if patients are still mad about that, then that is, uh, I can't help you. (laughs) I win them all. Exactly. Just trying to have that 94 and 95 uh, patient rating on there. Exactly. <laughs> if if you weren't a physician, what do you think would have happened in this scenario? That's a great question. That's a really good question. Uh, if I wasn't a physician, I would not have had a pulse oximeter mm-hmm. because no one was, that was not a common thing, right? That wasn't a thing. You know, everybody went out and grabbed the thermometer. And at the time that he was sickest, he was, he didn't even have a fever at that time. So I wouldn't, I would not have had a pulse oximeter. I don't even know if I know what to do with it, <laughs> even if I had one. Mm-hmm. And I would have just, he would have been like, oh, I'm, I'm tired, but I can, I'm not short of breath. I would have just looked for short of breath signs or like, you know, chest pain or something, you know, more outwardly. And it would have probably been the next morning, maybe when he might have presented himself to be so sick and saying he's short of breath and this and that, that I would have then maybe have taken him in. But, you know, this is how people can potentially end up on ventilators. This is how people don't make it. I'm not saying in every case, but yeah, I totally can see it going to that level had I not been a physician. All right. And what do you think would have happened from him being a patient, you not being able to- Ah, that part too. Oh my God. Yeah. I would have just been out there SOL. Like I would have, it would have been- even more traumatic. It was traumatic enough as a physician doing, you know, dropping him off and feeling like I have no idea. No, no one has my information to contact me. I don't know, you know, just being out of the loop. It would have been even more traumatic had I not been a physician because I wouldn't have had anybody to turn to that could have helped me get in on the inside. Like you said, you know, like, so yeah, it would have been, then I wouldn't have advocated as much, you know, Um, so there's a lot of things that, and it should, again, this is the part that it's like, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't get those perks just because I'm like, that should be, that should be for everybody. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Everybody. I I just kind of wonder, like in your situation, if, if you weren't a physician, would he have gotten sent home earlier? He would have. Yep. Then would he have deteriorated at home? And we've heard those stories. We've heard the stories. There was, a, I think, a young man that was discharged home and died the next day. You know, we heard those stories. I mean, I get it. The hospitals are being overrun, especially since the holidays, you know, have, are being overrun. I mean, the, the ER where I took them, it looked like COVID central, mm-hmm. you know. So everybody's like can barely breathe, coughing, whatever. So they're being overrun. So it's like, they have to like ration their resources and their beds and their this and their that, you know, I know many people who were sent home on homo too. These are young, healthy people like me and you that came, you know, that did not walk in 
ever having any lung issues that were sent home on homo two for weeks and weeks. Um, so it's sad that that's the new kind of uh, normal with this pandemic. But yeah, he would have been sent home for sure. They wanted to send him home. And I said, I just politely, I literally, I didn't even make a huge fuss. I just said, I just, I said, oh my gosh, I cannot imagine having him home tonight with the way he looked when I dropped him off. And these were his numbers when I dropped him off. And the ER doctor was like, say no more. So just to kind of touch upon that, yeah, most of the people who are listening are most likely not physicians. Mm-hmm. So how can they be an advocate for themselves or for their family members if they feel like they're getting discharged too soon? If you're not comfortable with the plan, you need to express that. Okay. I'm not comfortable. These are the reasons why is, you know, why, you know, if patients express to me and I'm taking care of a patient that they're not comfortable with being discharged home for, you know, after surgery, for some reason, I'm more like, I'm, I'm, I'm most likely almost, almost certainly probably going to just oblige and say, yeah, let's keep them one more night and let's observe, you know, mm-hmm. because that gut feeling of a family member, that gut feeling of even, you know, um, you don't, you just, it's not, Sometimes you can't tangibly explain why you just don't feel like this is comfortable. This is like a comfortable plan. But, you know, I am somebody who uh, puts some stock into that gut feeling. So if a family member who knows this person for a long time is like, I just don't feel right. This person isn't isn't, you know, right enough for me to send him home, then I'll probably oblige. So I think patients, number one. Patients are timid, sometimes are timid to speak up to doctors because it's this, the doctor knows best Mm -hmm. and, you know, listening to it, this like old, like father, not father figure, but yeah, this old, this old kind of mentality of just doing what the doctor says. So Mm -hmm. um, you can be respectful of the doctor's experience and what they're telling you and, um, and of their uh, training, but also express your concerns. So if you don't understand something, if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't feel comfortable, you need to say it. Mm-hmm. And what can we do better as physicians when patients start to advocate for their health? Do so we need to be better listeners or explain things better to patients? Yeah, I think, first of all, we need to be listeners and validate their concerns. When we talk over patients and don't listen and validate your fears, your questions, your concerns, how can we expect a patient to follow through? You know what I'm saying? So even if the concerns are unfounded, okay, even if the fears are overboard or unfounded, we need to at least validate that. For I know it's scary what you're going through. I know it's this confused. Let me then, I understand that, okay? Then let me then take the time out to walk you through why you shouldn't feel like this or why this is, you know what I'm saying? Validate the person, listen to the to the person, and then you can start to explain and have the patient understand fully what's going on. And I do try to do that with every single patient encounter. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely yeah. validating people's concerns because something that may be their concern may not necessarily be our concern. That's Correct. Hierarchy of problems that's going on. All the time. <laughs> Like you coming with concerns and you're like, okay, I get that. That's a concern. I validate, but let me, t- you know, it's not, you know, it's not our concern and this is why. <laughs> right. You want to come in and talk about your toenail fungus. <laughs> I'm more concerned about this mass in your abdomen. So yeah. <laughs> let's focus on that and we can get those toes straightened out later. Exactly. <laughs> Different levels of what's concerning us. Right. 
So <laughs> if you had to leave any lasting messages for people, what would you like them to know about this experience or COVID in general? I would just like them to, I, I, I want to validate the COVID or pandemic fatigue that mm-hmm. is real. Okay, this is now almost a year from when we just, our life started to change, you know, and it's, it's hard. It's emotionally, there's, you know, when studies have shown this is not, COVID is wreaking havoc, not just on, you know, the medical side of things or physical side of things, but on the emotional side of things, relationship side of things. And so have grace for yourself, but also please, please, please try to be careful, you know, heed the stuff that that we're asking you on maintaining distance and using masks. There's ways to try to safely socialize and judge your risk. And when you think about risk, don't only think about yourself because obviously whoever you're around also might be, ex- might, you know, put them, you pay, put them at risk. So mm-hmm. everybody has their ju- to judge their level of risk for themselves. I'm not here to wag my finger and say, stay at home all the time, everybody. That's not me, but judge your risk for yourself and use science to help and get a pulse oximeter. And if it's below 94 and you have COVID, get checked out. Absolutely. Yeah. And advocate for yourself. Okay. And I'll put a picture of what a pulse oximeter looks like. Um, And you can pick those up at like CVS and Walgreens. If you're listening, um, it's a little device that goes over your finger whenever you go to the hospital and the doctor's office. And we're just kind of checking your oxygen levels to make sure they stay elevated. But once they start yeah. dropping below, that's when we when we get concerned. Yeah, pox oximeter, you can get at CV, any, you know, CVS, Walgreens. You also can get it on Amazon. It reads out two numbers typically. One, which is like SAO2 or O2 which is your level of oxygenation, which we've been referring to as O2 sat, which should be in the high 90s typically. And then it also reads out your heart rate. So make sure you're not confusing the two when you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> definitely want to do that. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> your heart rate may be 60 and you freaking out like, oh, yeah. look, oxygen level is 60. Like, oh, oh, granny, that's your heart rate. You need that's to- your heart rate. So that's- yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Now you're in the ER for no reason. Exactly. You don't know which number to read. So, <laughs> you figure out which one so you won't have an unnecessary ER visit. Yes, because it's right. not cheap to go to the ER. <laughs> no, no. It ain't cheap to get an ambulance like your husband said. <laughs> $500? No, we're going to... Getting this car, we're just exactly. going. <laughs> I'd be the same way too, right now. Me too. <laughs> Making good money, and we still over here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to save our five hundred dollars. I know. I got jazzed about it. It's like two things right there. They're trying to get me. But thank you for sitting down and talking to me with the podcast. We're gonna wrap up with Randy's random questions. So you ready for Randy's random questions? I'm not ready. <laughs> Yes, yes, that makes means you're even more ready. Like, so you're, what? <laughs> yes. yes, yes, yes. So you're the first one to participate with these new cards that I got, which are Ooh. very exciting questions. So <laughs> shout out to uh, Pod Deck okay. for giving me these cards. So first question out of Randy's random questions: Would you rather go 30 days without your phone? or your entire life without dessert? I'd rather go my entire life without dessert. Why? Because I love my phone. And <laughs> dessert just goes straight to my pooch. So I can do without 
So we're trying to keep that six pack going. We're trying to keep the yes, we're trying to keep it tight. <laughs> What's your favorite dessert? And the other thing is I'm not a humongous dessert person. I like food okay. a lot more than I like dessert. But I like brownies, I like cookies, I like I hate cake. Don't like cake. What? What's wrong with cake? I don't like cake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like cake. I like some pies. Yeah, so I'm just not a huge dessert fan, so it's not really a big deal. I like pound cake. I'll eat pound cake, but yes, I don't like cakes usually. All right, so next question. Would you rather be the most popular kid in school or the smartest kid in school? Easy, smartest. Please, (laughs) please, popularity. Smart. (laughs) Why smart over popular? Because smart leads to ideas, leads to changing the world, leads to Mm -hmm. get money, leads to, you know what I'm saying? You could, yeah, popularity fades. Let me be smart. (laughs) Yeah, no matter how popular you are that doesn't necessarily always correlate to being smart correct yeah if you become smart it can lead to other things so yes Yes. and it's the smart people you want your kids like i tell my my older kids now i'm like oh you better find you somebody smart this popularity like (laughs) (laughs) get you somebody smart those are the people in 10 15 years that you gonna want to be with So. Right. So if you had to use one word to describe your husband, what would it be? Selfless. He is a giver in okay. all aspects. He is just a, a workhorse for his family. He is a he's kind hearted to even neighbors and friends and strangers like he just will give of himself as much as he can. So. OK, good. That's a good word. Mm-hmm. And this is the last one. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could choose one person, we'll say one celebrity to keep you company, hmm. what celebrity would that person be? Oh, this is a hard one. I think I would choose Phaedra <laughs> from Real Housewives <laughs> of Atlanta. I was not expecting that. Why Phaedra? <laughs> I love Phaedra. She is no longer a housewife and I think they need to bring her back, but she's mm-hmm. super funny. And seems like somebody who would just be so fun to hang out with. Yeah. Isn't Phaedra the lawyer? Phaedra's the lawyer. Yeah. Okay. She, was, okay. she was Bobby Brown's lawyer way back in the day. Yes. Okay. So yeah. Shout out to useless information I have in my brain. Housewives <laughs> and which one are a lawyer? Phaedra Parks. Yes. Yes. I wish. See, I just pushed out some medicine stuff because I know. <laughs> yeah, you pushed out some medicine yep, stuff. To yep. <laughs> I got to go back and study blood pressure. Medicine, so. All right. That's it. We'll let you off the hot seat. Appreciate you, you for participating in Randy's Random Questions. And thank you for the wonderful information that you provided. I'd like to have you on in the future. We can talk about some urology stuff. I would love to be on. I love this. This is great. I love this, what you're doing here. And I love the questions. I was not ready for that. That was great. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And if you want to go ahead and shout out your handles where people can follow you and watch you do your your great TikTok videos and your dances that you do and all the health information that you provide, you can shout that out if you want to. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Milhouse. So on Instagram or IG, I'm at Dr. Milhouse. And Milhouse is is with one L. So at D-R-M-I-L-H-O-U-S-E. And then I'm on TikTok. And at TikTok, I'm at your favorite urologist, spelled the way it's supposed to be spelled, your (laughs) (laughs) favorite urologist. So TikTok, your favorite urologist, 
and Instagram, Dr. Millhouse with one L. All right, y'all make sure to go follow her. She gives out a lot of good information. She's steadily getting a thousand new followers every week. Every time I look on IG, I'm like, man, she didn't reach 12,000. Now it's 13,000. I'm like, man, I'm just trying to get to 1,600. You're going to get there. You're going to get there. I'm telling you, it's a slow thing. And then suddenly it'll just start like kind of just taking off. So you will get there. Just stay with it. My lanky butt got to do some more dancing videos. (laughs) Thank you once again. Well, that was an interesting story shared by Dr. Milhouse. Her husband went from feeling okay one day to needing to be admitted to the hospital and put on oxygen. And this occurred approximately two weeks after his exposure. COVID is something serious. Make sure you get one of those pulse oximeters we mentioned. There's a link to what they look like in the show description. You can find them at your local pharmacy. Sometimes you can even find them at Walmart and Target. I also agree with the information Dr. Milhouse shared on how to be an advocate for yourself and your family members. It could be life-saving. Make sure to follow Dr. Milhouse on her social media platforms. She's really funny, guys. Really funny. Does all the new dances, all of that fun stuff. She's a real good uh, person to follow on social media. Her profiles are in the show description. And just a quick recap of the information I shared earlier in regards to data from individuals vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna vaccine in December and January, there were very few cases of anaphylaxis. 4.7 cases per million people for Pfizer and 2.5 cases per million for Moderna. So it's very rare to have an anaphylactic reaction with these vaccinations. One thing I would suggest if you're worried about having an anaphylactic reaction is to ask if the facility administering the vaccine has the necessary medical supplies to manage an anaphylactic reaction. For example, do they have an epinephrine pen, aka EpiPens, on standby in case you or someone else has an anaphylactic reaction? All facilities should have this on standby. They should be able to point it out to you. Like there it is, right there in the corner or on some table. It should be out in the open. This should help to ease your concerns. I hope y'all enjoy this episode. Follow me on IG and Twitter at underscore Dr. Randy if you haven't done so already. Rate, like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. Part of the success of this podcast depends on you sharing it with others. So please do. Also, check out my medical thriller called Appendicitis on Amazon and on my website, HeinzEntertainment.com. There's a link to that in the show description as well. Hey, forget all that book stuff. Come get me out the deep end. Oh, I forgot you were over there in the woods. I'll be over there in a sec. I'm not going over there. I need some time alone by myself. I heard that. Quick plan. It's getting cold over here. See y'all next week. Stay healthy physically and mentally.